0: Chapter 2 Jeremy Corbyn Resurgence of Left Social Democracy May Be Short Lived by Paul Cannon, Birmingham, September 2015. Labour's new leader is already succumbing to pressure to give up his long held positions on Britain's membership of NATO, the EU, and more. By the time 12th of September arrived, It was not a surprise to most of us when Labour officially announced that Jeremy Corbyn was the new leader of the Labour Party. After scraping onto the ballot paper to play the role of the constantly outvoted minority to paraphrase Engels, Corbyn romped home in the first round, winning clear majorities in all the various sections of the voting process, to gather 59.5% of the total and beat his main rivals by a country mile. Calls for party unity from Ed Miliband and others quickly followed the resignations from Shadow Cabinet positions of key Labour parliamentarians, and, within days, a hodgepodge of Shadow Cabinet had been formed featuring such well-known left luminaries as John MacDonald and Diane Abbott, alongside an assortment of the usual disciples of Tony Blair and Gordon Brown. Corbyn's position within the Labour Party... Principle versus Pragmatism It must be said that, despite everything, the election of Jeremy Corbyn was definitely not what the leaders of social democracy wanted. And yet, it is unfortunately not really a question of if Corbyn will betray his supposed proletarian class allegiances, but when. 1. The European Union Despite his left credentials... Jeremy Corbyn is already declaring his support for the European Union, the imperialist character of which he doesn't mention, on the grounds that it offers protection for European workers' rights, and also because, in his own words, I do not want barriers to British lorries driven by British workers, and British products made by British workers springing up, which would be one of the consequences of Britain leaving the EU, as so many Tory MPs believe should happen he prides himself on taking the same pro-EU stance as PASOC and Syriza in Greece, and Podemos in Spain. After all, what does it matter if we belong to a bloodthirsty imperialist bloc, so long as our workers can say, I'm alright Jack? Or even, it would seem, if they can't, but are at least better off than workers in oppressed countries. 2. NATO-imperialism Corbyn has always enjoyed the reputation of being a principled and lifelong opponent of the warmongering neo-Nazi NATO alliance, which is the minimum one would expect of one of Stop the War's star performers. And yet even on NATO he is backtracking fast. When challenged by Andy Burnham on whether he would pull out of NATO, Mr Corbyn said he would have a serious debate about the powers of NATO, but abandoned previous calls for total withdrawal. Having called in the past for Britain's withdrawal from NATO, he admitted there wasn't an appetite as a whole for people to leave. Which people does he mean? And so would argue for NATO to restrict its role. There are many well-meaning people in the working class movement who wish that everybody on the left would unite. But the problem with this nice idea is that to unite with social democracy is to unite with defenders of the bourgeois system something which should only be done in very exceptional circumstances and even then with one's eyes wide open as to the extreme dangers of such an alliance as long ago as the 1890s one of the founding fathers of marxism frederick engels characterized the fabians who were so instrumental in the formation of the labor party as follows this crowd is only too finished A clique of bourgeois socialists of diverse calibers from careerists to sentimental socialists and philanthropists united only by their fear of the threatening rule of the workers and doing all in their power to spike this danger by making their own leadership secure the leadership exercised by the educated if afterwards they admit a few workers into their central board in order that they may play there the role of a constantly outvoted minority This should not deceive anyone. Many have played the role of the principled yet constantly outvoted minority over the years for Labour. Jeremy Corbyn was expected by those who nominated him to take his turn and perform it admirably. Unfortunately for them, in a spectacular miscalculation, all their plans have gone awry. Right wing zealots attack a national security threat. So right-wing and reactionary has the British parliamentary scene become that the election of a relatively liberal white middle-class vegetarian, not an untypical sight in our capital city, sent many of our insufferable Etonian schoolboy politicians into a rage. In the weeks that followed his election, Corbyn was labeled a threat to national security, was told that the military would stage a coup if he ever became prime minister. And was generally subjected to all manner of threats, criticisms, and tantrums by Britain's corporate media, egged on by Cedatonians for not singing the national anthem. On the 13th of September, just one day after Corbyn took over the leadership, David Cameron declared, Labour are now a serious threat to our nation's security, our economy's security, and your family's security. Whether it's weakening our defences, Raising taxes on jobs and earnings, racking up more debt and welfare, or driving up the cost of living by printing money, Jeremy Corbyn's Labour Party will hurt working people. God save our gracious Queen. Taking their cue from the Prime Minister, the press went into action as soon as the opportunities began to arise. At Corbyn's first ceremonial event, which happened to fall in the week he took up the leadership, He failed to sing God Save the Queen at an event to mark the 70th anniversary of the Battle of Britain. Corbyn Snub's Queen and Country was the headline of the Telegraph. Veterans open fire after Corbyn Snub's anthem went the Times. Corbyn Snub's the Queen, said the Sun. Not Save the Queen ran the Metro. Shameful. Corbyn refuses to sing National Anthem said the Daily Express. Fury as Corbyn refuses to sing National Anthem at Battle of Britain Memorial, went the Daily Mail. Corby is zero. Lefty refuses to sing National Anthem, said the Daily Star. What a wide range of views there are to be found in our corporate media. Bourgeois war criminals queued up to attack him for offending the monarch. The Guardian reported MP Nicholas Soames, grandson of Winston Churchill, as saying that not singing the anthem was very rude and very disrespectful to the Queen and the Battle of Britain pilots who gave their all. It was an extremely disrespectful thing and I think he needs to make up his mind whether he is a grown-up or not. Privileged right-winger Alison Pearson writing in the Telegraph declared The event, Jeremy, wasn't about you and your reform agenda. It was about the sacrifice of thousands upon thousands of British people who did their duty. Many of them were Labour voters who would expect their leader to show respect to the Queen and country they died for. Amongst all this insanity, it was surprising to see an article in the New Statesman, of all places, reflecting on the long tradition of opposition to Britain's national anthem. Then, as now, public voices sought to intimidate those who would not toe the official line. In one Edinburgh theatre... A group of Irish medical students sung the Marseillaise, instead of God Save the King. Outraged, the young Walter Scott armed a group of youths with clubs, and attacked the opposition singers. Both factions were immediately banned from the theatre, but Scott and his friends were soon quietly readmitted. So much for one of the darlings of Scottish nationalism. But sadly... Rather than openly challenge the validity of Britain's feudal, relic-adoring dirge of a National Anthem, Corbyn chose to explain that he had spent the time reflecting upon his parents, who had been in London during the Battle of Britain. Numerous Labour spokespeople were then quoted in the media, reassuring us that Jeremy will be singing the National Anthem in future. So, panic over, revolution averted, the next headline looms. John McDonnell, IRA terrorist sympathiser? Hot on the heels of this scandal, on Friday 18th September, the press ran stories on Corbyn's newly appointed shadow chancellor, John McDonnell, another long-term member of Labour's club of perennially principled, but, alas, outvoted minority. Speaking on BBC Question Time... McDonnell apologised for having once expressed mild verbal support for the IRA and went on to give his blessings to the singing of the National Anthem. The Independent reported, Mr. McDonnell said of his remarks about the IRA, If I gave offence, and I clearly have, from the bottom of my heart I apologise. I apologise. At a rally in London in 2003 to commemorate IRA hunger striker Bobby Sands, The MP said that it was about time we started honouring those people involved in the armed struggle. It was bombs and bullets and sacrifice, made by the likes of Bobby Sands, that brought Britain to the negotiating table. The peace we have now is due to the action of the IRA, he added. On Thursday's question time, he said that at the time he had been trying to help the peace process. I accept it was a mistake to use those words, but actually if it contributed towards saving one life, or preventing someone else being maimed, it was worth doing, because we did hold on to the peace process, he said. There was a real risk of the Republican movement splitting, and some continuing with the armed process. If I gave offence, and I clearly have, from the bottom of my heart I apologise. Actually John, you were right the first time, but thanks for openly admitting that you're a career politician whose alleged principal stances are merely politically expedient platitudes. Your candid admission is duly noted. On the scandal over the singing of monarchist anthem God Save the Queen, Macdonald said that Labour leader Jeremy Corbyn normally did sing the national anthem, despite not doing so at a recent ceremony to mark the 75th anniversary of the Battle of Britain. It was quite a moving event, and he was casting his mind back to the war, The National Anthem isn't just for those who are monarchists, it's for everyone, and it represents the whole country, and that's why people sing it. Let us be the first to disassociate ourselves from such drivel, and declare that for British workers, God Save the Queen is no more our song than the butcher's apron is our flag. Corbyn and the British Military Just two days later, keeping to the theme of Corbyn and his pals being dangerous subversives, an anonymous senior serving general in the British Army announced via the pages of the Sunday Times that any attempt to interfere with the British state's military machine would not be tolerated. The army just wouldn't stand for it. The general staff would not allow a Prime Minister to jeopardise the security of this country, and I think people would use whatever means possible, fair or foul, to prevent that. You can't put a maverick in charge of a country's security. There would be mass resignations at all levels, and you would face the very real prospect of an event which would effectively be a mutiny. Many soldiers are disgusted by the comments of Corbyn and Macdonald about the IRA. Men who have not only murdered British soldiers, but also hundreds of members of their own community. If it achieves nothing else, it is worth noting that by bringing forth such open and frank statements as these, Jeremy Corbyn's election is providing workers with many excellent lessons regarding the true nature of the capitalist state. Trotskyite Revisionist Alliance Heals the Second Coming Alas, whilst the corporate media were busy filling their pages with lies, nonsense and gibberish about the risk to national security and the revolutionary potential of Jeremy Corbyn, our friends in the Trotskyite and Revisionist fraternity were doing the same. One of the most welcome side effects of Jeremy Corbyn's election will be the continued disintegration and destruction of the Trotskyite and revisionist romp in Britain. With the election of a real left socialist to the leadership of the Labour Party, the wildest dreams of the Griffithses, the Communist Party of Britain, Matgamnas, Workers' Fight and Alliance for Workers' Liberty, Reeses and Germans, the Socialist Party and Counterfire, Tafts, Militant, and the Socialist Party et al has come true. Almost all the members of Britain's Trotskyist and Revisionist Fellowship have healed the election of Corbyn and the increase of Labour Party membership as a sign that socialism is now the order of the day, and that Labour has been transformed into an entirely new political party nearly overnight by the arrival of so many three-pound members. The leading light of social fascist misfits, the AWL, Alliance for Workers' Liberty, Sean MacGamna, wrote There is nothing timid, half-hearted or half-strangled about Jeremy Corbyn and his politics, or about John McDonnell, whom he has appointed as Labour's Shadow Chancellor of the Exchequer. To an enormous degree this is a new political party. You see, dear listener, take a party. Let's say Labour, a party of imperialism for over a hundred years and a party with a long and proud history of racism, chauvinism, and servility to the bourgeoisie. What happens when you take said party and place Jeremy Corbyn and John MacDonald at the top? Hey presto, a new party. It's really that easy. The Socialist Party, another Trotskyite outfit, which for the last ten years or so has been campaigning for a new workers' party, has now decided that such a party has actually appeared, like Minerva from The Head of Jupiter. The lack of democracy in the Labour Party and growing levels of working-class alienation from it meant a movement within the Labour Party structures was not the most likely scenario. Nonetheless, we have no fetish about by what route the crisis of working-class political representation would be solved and have never excluded the possibility of Labour swinging left. As long ago as 2002 we argued that, under the impact of great historic shocks, a serious economic crisis, mass social upheaval, the ex-Social Democratic parties could move dramatically towards the left. However, the reality is that the Corbyn surge has mainly not come from within the Labour Party, but from outside. New members and registered supporters who are attracted by the hope of something different. This is a new party in the process of formation, which will face relentless attack from the old, pro-capitalist New Labour. Despite such assertions, however, This new party appears to be dominated by many of the old characters. The Socialist Party has no problem later in the same article relating this fact. The Shadow Justice Secretary, the Blairite Lord Falconer, has a record of introducing draconian anti-democratic legislation. Heidi Alexander, the Shadow Health Secretary, has previously supported the privatisation and closure of hospitals. Andy Burnham, the Shadow Home Secretary, showed how right-wing he is at the start of the leadership election campaign, supporting further benefit cuts and opposing the mansion tax as the politics of envy. So desperate are the Trotskyites to return to the social democratic bosom from which they were torn in the early 1990s that they now openly advocate a return to entryism and factional struggle inside the Labour Party, and, whilst it is still some way off, we can only look forward to the organisational liquidation of these renegades. Call a conference of all anti-austerity forces which can elaborate a clear programme of no cuts and the necessary action at local and national level to implement this. It is also necessary at the same time to create a parallel organised framework around Corbyn, which could organise the campaign to involve all anti-austerity and socialist forces in a new mass movement the Socialist Party and TUSC will be part of such a movement. The conclusions to draw from Corbyn's victory should be no prevarication, no retreats, no banding to the scheming splitters in the right-wing PLP, Parliamentary Labour Party, or to the constitutional requirements of the current Labour Party structures. We are now presented with a new opportunity which must not be lost. In harmony with the position of the Trotskyites, are our old friends in the Communist Party of Britain, CPB. The revisionist clique running the Morning Star and the CPB are equally gleeful about the prospect of better relations with social democracy. Morning Star editor Ben Chaco, while reviewing the Sunday morning papers on the BBC's Sunday Politics show, was pleased to note that socialism was now back on the agenda. In a political report entitled Corbyn Victory, Rebuilding the Force for Change, The CPB's leadership declared enthusiastically, Corbyn's campaign has enthused many thousands of people to see new hope in the Labour Party. Rather than celebrating the strengthening of the ties of workers to social democracy, however, true communists should be doing everything to expose social democrats, who want to keep us loyal to imperialism, and to show the way forward to socialism. But the CPB celebrates all that is backward in the Labour movement, and strives to further strengthen the illusions that keep workers tied to the British ruling class's coattails. All of the Trotskyite revisionist gang are now praying for a return to some form of federal Labour Party, a structure within which they hope to carve out some cushy jobs, helping to keep British workers on our own unique and never-ending British road to socialism. One where social democratic parties can transform overnight into new forces for change and where the march to socialism is exceedingly long. In his article, One of the Fundamental Questions of the Revolution, written in September 1917, Lenin spoke about the role that is played by those social democrats and reformists who pretend to fight for socialism through parliamentary means alone. The entire history of the bourgeois parliamentary, and also, to a considerable extent, of the bourgeois constitutional, countries, shows that a change of ministers means very little, for the real work of administration is in the hands of an enormous army of officials. This army, however, is undemocratic through and through. It is connected by thousands and millions of threads with the landowners and the bourgeoisie, and is completely dependent on them. This army is surrounded by an atmosphere of bourgeois relations, and breathes nothing but this atmosphere. It is set in its ways, petrified, stagnant, and is powerless to break free of this atmosphere. It can only think, feel, or act in the old way. This army is bound by servility to rank, by certain privileges of civil service. The upper ranks of this army are, through the medium of shares and banks, entirely enslaved by finance capital, being to a certain extent its agent, and a vehicle of its interests and influence. That is why it always happens, under all sorts of coalition cabinets that include socialists, that these socialists, even when individuals among them are perfectly honest, in reality turn out to be either a useless ornament or a screen for the bourgeois government. A sort of lightning conductor to divert the people's indignation from the government, a tool for the government to deceive the people. This was the case with Louis Blanc in 1848, and dozens of times in Britain and France when socialists participated in cabinets. This is also the case with the Chernovs and Ceratellis in 1917. So it has been, and so it will be, as long as the bourgeois system exists, and as long as the old bourgeois bureaucratic state apparatus remains intact. We in Britain must learn from these wise words. Whilst Jeremy Corbyn is today merely the Leader of the Opposition, it is now quite possible that in the future he may become Prime Minister, and that it is therefore the job of Communists to help workers understand the painful truth. It is absolutely impossible that such a Premiership could ever result in a Socialist Britain.